There's you guys are missing the most important part. Uh, not only can he do all those badass things, he can play a piano with his dick. <laughs> How do you know that? Okay. Exactly. I don't, I don't even I want to know. I don't care. I choose to believe that this is true. Whether or not, I don't need to see any evidence. Because here's, here's, here's... Uh, you need the evidence. <laughs> well, it's right okay, there, but... This, this brings me to a little bit of a point, too, about how just how much um, we are all kind of like it or not, we can all be soldiers in this like information battle, you know, like we all can choose to like help and support and push the, um, the things that are coming out of the positive stories that are coming out of Ukraine. And that does have, you know, a, a marginal in, impact. You know, it's not like we're just completely neutral actors here. So like. I choose to believe these stories of like the ghost of Kiev and you know the the Snake Island defenders and all that. I don't. Are they true? Maybe. I mean, obviously the Snake Island people are real and they did say those things. Um, but I don't really even care if it's exactly accurate because you know we need those stories right now and the Ukrainian people need those stories. And so I'm happy to you know to push that as part of my little bit that I can do to help support that. And if that means that Zelensky can play the piano with his penis, like, go for it. This is the Orientalist Express podcast, episode 35. This is the show that brings together young professionals from all over the world to discuss a variety of topics related to the Middle East, American foreign policy, and international relations. The goal of this podcast is to make American foreign policy interesting and easy to understand for those who don't follow it too closely. So I'm Nicholas Hayen, founder of the Orientalist Express site and president of the board of directors for the Minnesota International NGO Network. I also just started as the marketing and communications manager for Global Minnesota, a nonprofit that works to advance international understanding and engagement throughout Minnesota. And I also serve on the Minnesota Advisory Committee for the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition which is an advocacy organization that's dedicated to promoting the importance of American global engagement in international relations. So we're recording this special edition of the show late on Saturday, March 5th, uh, late because many of us have children that are now hopefully fortunately asleep. Um, So things may have changed dramatically by the time you hear this episode. Um, And of course, we've got a full house tonight in the virtual studio. So I'll just kind of let everyone introduce themselves, um, maybe starting with Matt. Oh, well, uh, I'm humbled by being the first one to introduce myself. I'm Matthew. I work in Foggy Bottom in D.C., and I'm excited to talk tonight about a Ukraine conflict. Toms, how about you go next? You've been on the show before. Yeah, actually, it has been some time, but I'm really mm-hmm. glad to be back again. Well, some things have changed. I can maybe tell a bit about that. So basically now, currently, I'm a PhD student at the University of Delaware. I study international relations. Uh, previously, I worked for three years uh, in journalism, uh, as also as a political commentator. Uh, then before that, I also worked in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. I'm originally fr- from Latvia. So I kind of looking forward to kind of discussing the topic of Ukraine because it's also close, you know, to my heart because I come from the region. So I'm looking forward to a fruitful conversation tonight. And finally, welcome for the first time to the show, Steve. Hi. Just a few words about myself. I've been living in Ukraine for the past seven years. 
I worked mainly as an English teacher, but also worked with a couple of political campaigns um, in 2019 and uh, as a kind of political analyst for one of the big, he's one of the bigger oligarchs of uh, Ukraine. But for the past, I would say, year and a half, I've been working in an international school as an English teacher. So thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on to, to talk about this. And, you know, of course, all of our sincerest condolences for like what's happening for you and the people you know out there. Um, yeah, it's it's an absolute tragedy that we're going to spend a lot of time talking about. Um, you know, so obviously this special episode is is all about just this devastating invasion of Ukraine that Russia has just carried out in the past two weeks. Um, we actually just finished up a blog post on this that was authored by myself and Stephen Howard. So I'd encourage everyone to go check it out. But um, yeah, just to kind of lay the groundwork, of course, you know, surprising pretty much everyone who is outside of the international or of the uh, intelligence community in the United States, R Russia actually did engage in this uh, just absurd all out invasion of Ukraine with the clear intended purpose of of just taking out the leadership and installing a puppet regime, something that we really haven't seen on this scale um, for, for decades, probably not even since the Second World War, at least not on this particular scale. You know, there have, of course, been right. similar tragedies happening before, but just how massive this is. Um, and of course, like I say, surprising pretty much everyone on the outside looking at it, thinking, why in the world would uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin do something that's just so obviously egregious and w without any gray zone that he's usually used to operating in. Of course, you know, credit to the American intelligence community for seeing this a mile away and openly calling that out to everyone and their mom for the past several months, um, <laughs> which has actually been really great to remove any pretext because, of course, you know, there was attempted pretext of saying, well, Ukraine started it or um, it was really separatists in the Donbass who were starting it. There was no way to deny what has happened and who is, is ultimately at fault here. So, yeah, I guess with that, maybe, Steve, do you want to just kind of start off and just tell us what you're thinking, how you're feeling, your, your background and all this? And um... I'm literally, I'm in a 24-hour news telegram channel where I'm just basically mm -hmm. looking to see, you know, is my home still standing? That's basically it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've got friends that are checking in with me periodically, usually twice twice a day, once in the morning, once in the evening. Um, some of them don't check in, so I don't know what's happening. You know, it's it's pretty traumatic. I I spent like um, when I came to the U.S., the Russian soldiers hadn't actually crossed the border yet; they were just kind of accumulating at the border. And the big rumor was that you know nothing was going to happen; everything was going to be okay. Yeah. You know, everyone around me was saying, oh, come on, they're not going to really invade. They're just, they're just, you know, pushing buttons, trying to negotiate. I had Ukrainian um, friends who said, oh, yeah, I've got, I've got a brother in the soldier, like the army or their border guards, and there's negotiations happening. Everything's okay. And so I left a bunch of my things behind thinking that I'd come back um, to Ukraine shortly. But unfortunately, that's not the case. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know what's happening every day. It's like a new, you know, a new trauma, basically. So, yeah. Where, where was your, was your home base at? It was in Kiev mm -hmm. um, and it was just outside the center of Kiev. So there's like the center part of Kiev and then you have this area around it. 
And uh, if you guys know the uh, Hostomel airport and yeah. Erdogan and that area. So as you're coming in from, uh, from that area into Kiev, that's like the first part where my, my home is. So I did not expect the fighting to be so close actually to my home, but I can see, you know, places that I recognize that are getting bombed and soldiers, troops, tanks going in. So the Ukrainian army has been doing pretty well, I think, with holding them off. You know, it's been this long and Russian troops still haven't been able to to take the city. So I wanted to just uh, ask you about that. I heard something in the news about how they assume they only had something like a week worth of uh, basically uh, ammunition left. Has that been extended by international aid well as far as i know from what i've i've seen from uh klitschko makes he's the mayor of kiev and he occasionally makes these periodic videos explaining the whole situation one of the things that i really like about the ukrainian media is that they're very very honest so they were some of the first that said that okay this particular city has been taken by russia okay there's still some fighting and now we've taken it back you know so they're trying to coordinate with citizens so the citizens actually can go out and participate uh, making Molotov cocktails and <laughs> all this kind of yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. um, but um, as far as the supply for weapons and things, honestly, if we're talking about the Ukrainian army, I, I'm not sure. All I do know is that there, there's always new supplies being flown in and the Ukrainian army will make posts occasionally you know, saying something like um, Poland has sent such and such number of weapons. We're brothers. Yeah. And but the Polish Ukrainian border is pretty open. Is that right? Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty open right now, as as well as with uh, Moldova and with Hungary as well. So uh-huh. they're they're all pretty open. About Ukrainian media, I think uh, it's also not really like good and beneficial for them to kind of disseminate information that might be viewed in negative light because i think they also have to keep like morale up right so i think that's why it's really hard to kind of get information about the losses on the ukrainian side and and basically their condition of their army like we don't know um maybe they are also also running out of ammo maybe they also have losses but um yeah, well, we can we can only guess, I guess. But I think I agree to you that the positive aspect is that uh, almost no the major city has been taken except Herson, I think, on the south. It yeah. kind of fell, unfortunately, but it had already been besieged for some time. So uh, I guess it was just it was just inevitable, right? So I guess what Russians are now trying to do, they are kind of trying to encircle Kiev and Kharkov, uh, basically the two biggest cities of Ukraine, right? And Kharkov, I guess, is also a major hub of, um, of military, military supplies because it has like railway connections over there, right? So it would be easier for Russians to resupply their forces if Kharkov is taken. But I mean, as I said, as you said, Steve, I think we can just, um, we can just be in awe regarding the Ukrainian resistance. And even, even if Putin really breaks Ukrainian army and even if he really takes Ukraine, then I think the resistance will be just immense, right? Uh, I mean, like, uh, I can kind of draw parallels with Iraq and Afghanistan and the United States. I mean, like, you can destroy the forces, but controlling the territory, that's a completely different thing, right? Well, and this this is quite a bit different, too, because um, 
because we live in a, a period where everything is open source. So for example, Telegram um, is something that's very widely used in Ukraine right now. And they're, they're actually using it to track Russian troops moving throughout the city. So they say, okay, so this, this person says that Russian troops are here and then uh, they can coordinate with the army and destroy. Because there were several instances actually of saboteurs in Kyiv. So these really suspicious people driving around in vans, parking somewhere, stopping, getting out, and then like using their phones to signal something. And yeah. townspeople were like, what? what is going on? So they started calling it in and come to find out they've got, you know, all these different bombs in the back of their cars. And uh, I, mean, I mean, all those videos we see of people just, I don't know, like driving a car and throwing Molotov or on, yeah. on the tank while doing drive-by ride. Which, by or, the way, be real careful because it just engulfs your own car in flames as well if you do that. So. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that was it's, it's kind of like spitting in the wind. You got to be careful. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, we saw that on video, like the lady, which like drew Molotov, her her, her arm also got on flame, right? Mm -hmm. And also those people who are like uh, taking tractors and just trying to ditch the tanks, right? Oh yeah, <laughs> all those videos and yeah. Russian soldiers on the tractor, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think it just kind of highlights the the amount of resistance that Russian troops will be facing, even even if uh, Ukrainian army is not operating anymore, and even if Zelensky is supposed is is forced to flee, or God God help, that doesn't happen, or or he's killed, right? Because he's just refusing to be evacuated. Yeah, I mean, the Ukrainian dream is much bigger than just Zelensky. Ukraine yeah. has been yeah. around. And the other thing too is that um, when I first arrived uh, in 2005, uh, there was already a war going on in the East, yeah. but it wasn't between the yeah. Ukrainian army and Russian separatists. It was between volunteers who were basically the military wings of different political parties. And they had basically volunteered to go to the East in order to fight off these Russian separatists to keep Ukraine as one. And so that was without uh, a president, without any government support. And even today, I think that if Russia were to be able to take control of the government as it is now, they're going to have a hell of a hell of a time trying to get everything, you know, under control in the West, because I mean, that's just you give them yeah, a gun, they, they'll go out and they'll defend themselves and they'll fight for, for their country no matter what, you know? And we also yeah. shouldn't, uh, like, forget sanctions, right? I mean, Western right. countries have been, like, really are spending really aggressively. I mean, all those swift sanctions and uh, sending arms to Ukrainian troops as well and weapons and everything, so... From Russia's perspective, this was supposed to be the easy part, right? Oh, Roll yeah. Then real quick take over, okay, we're, we're in charge now, done, and then deal with a resistance later. But they haven't even gotten to that point and the amount of pain and casualties that they have had inflicted on their side. And yeah. all the while, every day that goes on, you know, more and more support and munitions and weapons are able to go into Ukraine to back them up even more. I mean, just like the number of Stinger missiles and Javelins that are getting in now to help re resupply the army is, is astounding. And you know, just every day that that gets pushed more and more, it makes it harder and harder for Russia to actually uh, accomplish those strategic objectives, let alone being able to actually hold the country 
if they were to even get that far. So uh, what you're saying is when they went into Ukraine, they kind of expected it to be relatively bloodless is what you're implying. And that's just, this yeah. is just so unexpected. This is a wild yeah. card to them. They did not. Which, which is wild because everyone else looking at it. I mean, I, Steve, I don't want to speak for Ukrainians, but I would imagine that they all looked around and said, well, that would be stupid, right? Like for him to just blatantly roll tanks in, like yeah. how would he be that idiotic? And yet here we go. You know, it's, it's almost like he got high in his own supply of misinformation and thought like, oh, the Ukrainians really do love me. It's like, no. No, they clearly don't, man. Everyone else knows this. What is wrong with you, Putin? That's part of it. The other thing is that um, in 2014, Russia took possession of Crimea and there wasn't a shot fired. Hmm. Yeah. And I think I think he was expecting something similar to happen with the whole of Ukraine. But the problem is that at that time there was no strong central government. There wasn't a president that was in charge. Right at that time. Uh, Yanukovych had already left, and um, Poroshenko hasn't hadn't actually been elected yet, or he, he hadn't been um, put in office, and so they had no leadership in Kiev, which meant that they had only themselves to rely on, and for the most part, they were all Russian speaking, and they saw Russians as kind of like their brothers, because many of them, I don't know if you guys know this, but so it was it used to be part of Russia before, yeah, then it was given to Ukraine. I think it was. Khrushchev, yeah, right, and but under Stalin, what he had done was he took all the indigenous people, the Crimean Tatars, and spread them, like made them move to places like in Kazakhstan, Siberia, this far, um, far east areas, and brought in a bunch of Russians to settle, like ethnic Russians, and so Crimea was already kind of more ethnically Russian in that sense. Eventually, Crimean Tatars were allowed to return, but it hasn't been in a large capacity like they used to be as a result of the resettlement and everything under Stalin. But when Ukraine declared its independence, you know, in 1991, I think it was, Crimea was part of Ukraine. And part of the reason why it was given to Ukraine was because of that land bridge. There's no land bridge between Crimea and Russia right now. You know, the only way that uh, Russians can access it is by building their own bridges, which were basically blown up um, by the Crimean Tatars because they didn't want to go to Russia. They wanted to stay with Ukraine. They had special like recognition in Ukraine. They had their, they call it an autonomous um, oblast. What also worked to Russia's advantage in that case was um, they had some air of deniability, you know, like Right. They, they used the little green men, as they're called. They didn't have Russian uniforms necessarily. They denied it. Um, this, of course, this invasion now is com- the complete exact opposite, where everybody knows it's Russia that's rolling right in, and they don't even deny it. So because uh, th- that deniability is you know, kind of the way you were getting to, Matthew, about sanctions, that deniability has allowed the United States and Europe, to an extent, to basically just go, okay, well, I guess that's bad, but I can't really point to it. So I'm just going to keep enjoying all of your oil and gas and pretend that nothing's happening. Yeah, we haven't really touched the oil and gas, mostly because Europe is so reliant on it, but also because, you know, we we live in a global oil market. You, you mess with oil supply anywhere around the world, it essentially messes with it everywhere else, you know? So if we, considering that, 
me and Russia are alternately the number one and number two uh, producers of oil, respectively, depending on the year. They produce so much oil. Trying to sanction them would just completely, mm. you know, they're not a marginal provider like Saudi Arabia or Venezuela. They are a primary provider of oil and gas to the world. So, you know, we can't really sanction them. Plus, we also can't really increase like any uh, military support to Ukraine if we wanted, right? Because Putin has kind of like made his grand deterrence move, as I call it. I mean, he has increased the uh, readiness of his nuclear forces, right? So he's kind of kind of signalizing that if someone will try to kind of force or maybe like enforce no-fly zone, for example, what Zelensky is kind of asking, right? Mm-hmm. And then that would actually mean escalation of the conflicts and basically war of NATO against against Russia, right? So it's it's pretty dangerous, dangerous situation, but we also, uh, I think, have to have to take into account. And I mean, that's a strategy that Russia has been doing in, in many conflicts. I mean, like in Syria, for example, in 2015, they also did like similar thing. They, when they like, in their winds, they they said that they have enough anti-air capabilities to kind of shoot down anyone who is trying who is gonna gonna respond to them, right? Um, so I guess West is kind of in a, in a such a bad situation, right? That uh, we have almost done everything that we can do right now, and the rest is just in the hands of Ukrainians. Yeah, I, I just want to say I I don't think it's so depressing actually because I read uh, recently today that. Uh, around 100,000 people have joined the Ukrainian army since this conflict began. And keep in mind, there was about 80,000 Ukrainians that came back to Ukraine to fight. So, I mean, even if there's not, even if they've been having heavy losses uh, so far, I mean, you still have a pretty good amount of soldiers that are coming in. And when you also consider that that 150,000 number of Russians uh, on the border of Ukraine, uh, I think the last, I think it was yesterday I read, um, the U.S. intelligence said that about 90% have been activated and are now currently in Ukraine. But if that's 90% of 150,000 and they're doing so poorly, you know, there's a lot of yeah. hope on the Ukrainian side for all this, that it's going to end hopefully quickly, but I don't know yeah. how quickly. Well, and that's that's the point with, um, you know, we shouldn't discount just how severe these sanctions are it is yeah. it is truly remarkable we have the world has never seen like such a dramatic cutting off of one entity from the entire global market and really we should commend um, the european union and the biden administration for for rallying the world to that cause um, i was listening to uh, the new york times podcast the daily and they talked about how um, for months actually the united states was working with um, some of the lead technical sanctions operators in Europe saying, okay, we need to have a game plan here. If they attack, you know, what sanctions can we do and how do we make them, like, how do we get into the details of that so that we actually punish, for the most part, the people at the top of that Russian oligarchy and try to shield, uh, you know, the average Russian as much as possible. Of course, knowing that you can't shield them from everything, given that their economy is completely and utterly shuttered. I mean, their entire central bank basically cannot access uh, funds or do anything. They're completely cut off from, you know, land, air, sea travel for the most part. It is it's yeah. truly astounding. And that's that's the idea, right, Steve, is if we can cause enough economic pain in addition to um, just the, you know, the substantial losses they're seeing in the battlefield, if we can do that quickly enough, 
before enough damage is done in Ukraine, maybe that can end the war and shorten it as quickly as possible. I think, that's the hope. I think we also shouldn't discount the fact that actually Putin has a very, very, very strong propaganda machine going on mm. in Russia, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I think they, they have been kind of like flushing the people with the messaging, basically West is the aggressor, right? I mean, you yeah. can put sanctions, but if you frame them correctly, as Putin is really master of doing, you can just frame them that actually that's the West's fault uh, that we have these sanctions, right? Because West is the one that really doesn't want, uh, mm-hmm. doesn't want to allow Russia to kind of share power with the United States, right? Because Russia is also a great power. Yeah. It, 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 is, uh, it is warranted its own sphere of influence. You know, as the United States has Monroe Doctrine, Russia should also have its own maybe version of Monroe Doctrine, right? And as long as people kind of buy this argument, right, I think it's, it, it kind of mitigates the effect of the sanctions in a way. One of the big things I would say as well is when you look at um, Ukraine, Ukraine authentically sees itself as European, even if the rest of the EU has not seen it like that so far. They, they really do see themselves as European. If you look at their election results, they have never reelected a president. So their president served for five years. And since the very beginning uh, in 1991, right, when it got independence from the Soviet Union, they have not reelected any of their presidents. The presidents stay active in political life, which is different from, you know, in the U.S., where you just kind of, after your president, you serve your two terms, you're done, and you kind of just start charity organizations or something. In Ukraine, um, they're still active politically. Like Poroshenko, even though he lost, he's still actively seeking, you know, he's, I think he's part of Verkhona Rada um, again, um, or his, his party is called, I think it's Poroshenko Bloc. And so, I mean, he's, he's very active, very involved in Ukraine, even though he's not president anymore. It's kind of interesting because they're still active, and yet they're not in the leadership position that they were before. And I think that really does say a lot about uh, the country as being democratic. You yeah. know, that's why, that's why I think this is a lot different than if we were trying to save another Middle Eastern country, for example, where they've never had an authentic democracy. It's just been the same person reelected over, reelected, I use that term, you know, loosely, yeah. uh, over and over and over again. Whereas with Ukraine, they're trying this demo- democratic experiment. They, they're using it. They're applying it. You know, they've got rights. I actually felt uh, when I was living in, in Ukraine, I actually felt like I was more free there than I was in the United States. I didn't have to show my passport every single time I wanted to buy a SIM card, for example, for a cell phone. Hmm. Whereas here you, you kind of have to. I, well, mean, like- I think about Georgia and how Georgia wanted to be uh, pivot as close to EU as close as possible and they still were not fully accepted i mean geographically speaking and i mean it's it's definitely much further you know than ukraine Hmm. how much of that was because in part putin kept on you know every time that a nation would say like hey i think i want to be part of europe now that's when he would immediately go in and start screwing around with them and, and sabotaging all those plans. Exactly. I think that's his strategy. I mean, if you want to gravitate towards NATO and EU, you, he just makes <laughs> a bunch of frozen conflicts there. And basically, yeah. you know, as EU and NATO has criteria, and uh, basically one of the criteria is that you have to be have to have control over your territory, right? 
-hmm. if you don't have it, then most likely you won't be accepted, right? But I think we yep. we we, we kind of can see a pretty good developments last days because I think Zelensky kind of signed a letter uh, for the application to join the EU yeah. as well, and kind of George and also also did the same thing and. Mm -hmm. Seemed that at least rhetorically wise, it was like accepted with some 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 form of positivity, right? Uh, but of course, it'll take just like many years until they are accepted or or even being close accepted, right? But at least I think there is like um, some movement toward that, and and as long as there is some movement toward that, then at least we have some hope, I guess. Yeah, and, and that's I think it really backfired for Putin because. Right. You could argue with for sure with uh, far right movements that I mean in the U.S. our far right movements are sincere. You don't necessarily need Russian interference for us to be weird and crazy and anti EU <laughs> and anti socialist. Whatever we can be that way without the help of Vladimir Putin's disinformation machine. But, but they were happy to encourage help. it. That's not they were they're, happy to encourage it. That's yeah, they're they're pouring they're pouring gas on the fire that already independently. Yeah. In the yes. U.S. culture, yeah. and I guess presumably Canadian culture too, who's seen with that trucker convoy. Um, yeah, but back to that, I I think that it's backfiring because now you see the Nordic countries are considering being more friendly and positive and less skeptical of the EU <laughs> as a response to this Russian aggression and Russian disinformation and Russian aggression. You know, for the past twenty years, has been oriented towards. <laughs> Uh, trying to basically demoralize Western unity. Uh, we know that there's been some Russian misinformation behind the pro-Brexit movement uh, because, mm -hmm. you know, hey, look, you're, you're already weakening the EU by encouraging um, pro-Brexit elements in the UK. Um, and essentially, if, if he wanted to shake the confidence of the EU, it, it, it's backfired because now, look, these Nordic countries want to be closer. Yeah, that's the remarkable thing. It took he did twenty years of trying to divide all of Europe and the United States, and in you know a day he undid all of that and then some. Because now Finland even wants to join NATO, and they were <laughs> historically very reticent to do that. But that's a point I wanted to to highlight that you mentioned, Tom's, is that um, you know some people are like, well, why don't we just bring Ukraine as part of NATO right now? And one, it's a very long process, and two, as you mentioned you have to have completely resolved all of your external disputes because, you know, Article 5 of NATO being the most important part, that, that you know, idiom that says an attack on one is attack on all. If you're in the middle of a territorial dispute and you try to join NATO, then suddenly you could maybe try to claim Article 5 and get everyone else on your side to, to solve that dispute. So, so that's the ultimate problem. And, and that's why, of course, you know, Ukraine, one of the only nations in Europe that is not part of NATO, that's why the attack is being, you know, focused here as opposed to, you know, potentially on one of the, the NATO states. Plus, oh. I think there, there's also another argument that technically, even though Ukraine is not part of NATO formally, like it has been integrated like in the last years after a minor revolution within Euro Atlantic stru structure so thoroughly, right, that it can almost be considered to be as a de facto NATO state, right? And I mean, there is one, this, this opinion and argument in the air. I don't know if I subscribe to that completely, but nevertheless, I'm just going to throw it here. So that uh, Putin kind of realized that his uh, strategy of 
uh, keeping frozen conflicts in place wasn't working properly because Ukraine was still de facto yeah. going towards the West, right? Yeah. So he, so I guess he just had to like go one step further, and then the, that one step was full-on invasion, right? As I said, I don't know if I agree to that, but just just interesting point. No, yeah. Like, and yeah. just to just to go on that, actually, if you if you look at how Georgia responded, so they got rid of Saakashvili, right? Yeah. And they put in this new guy that was kind of more pro-Russian and things kind of calmed down in Georgia as a result. But in Ukraine, the same thing was feared actually about Zelensky because he was elected with overwhelming popularity. Then everyone was fit, like they were all afraid that, oh, no, oh, no, it's going to be the same thing. We're going to go back to the old ways. There were lots of people who were returning from exile who were now officially, you know, getting government positions. But then when you contrast it with what's happening now, it's like, I, I think I think we were all afraid for nothing, actually. I think <laughs> it, the plan completely backfired and Zelensky has got has become even, even more uh, pro-European than even Poroshenko could have been, you know? So I guess this is like an inflection point that is almost as important as when we shifted from, you know, Cold War to post-Cold War, uh, the the veneer of Russian power and Russian influence has been taken off and we're kind of just seeing, you know, Russia for its actual potential more transparently. Yeah, this this truly is. It's a revealer moment. This is this is a foundational point in international relations that will be looked upon as a major pivot in in, in the entire course of, of history, basically. Because you know you have that the Cold War period, then you have Cold War ends, you have that post war. We really are at the end of I don't want to say the post post war because that sounds really academic and stupid, but we are at the end of the post-Cold War phase, and we're entering this new phase where now Europe is far more united, fortunately. Russia, we'll see how they fare out of this, but they're clearly a pariah right now. Their only friend maybe is going to be China to some extent. And I think, obviously, given how much of a bungle this is for Russia, like clearly they're going to continue to decline, even as they were before. And China is really just going to be the focus. And I think we haven't seen that yet because, you know, we're if this really is the inflection point, we're only two weeks into it. But um, I think that we're going to see Russia just continue to decline further. And and this new era is going to be a much more united Europe, much more united U- United States with Europe and an ascendant China. And that's really where the focus is going to be, you know, decades from now. But it, of course, that is not to minimize the very, very clear and present issue that we have to solve right now, which is, you know, ensuring that Ukraine... Uh, maintains its independence and that they can defeat Russia in this. Yeah, the, this 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 uh, solidarity that we're experiencing, it, it's it's kind of like the Russian cynicism machine uh, has just been sucking the air out mm-hmm. of our <laughs> out of our uh, global dialogue on you know human progress. I was surprised, pleasantly surprised. Um, I was driving around, sending out some packages here in California. And we pulled in, my dad and I, we pulled into a shop. Uh, it was the wrong place. <laughs> we had turned in the wrong place. But I looked and I saw Ukrainian flags. I'm like, wait a minute, what? what is nice. this? You know? Yeah. And uh, underneath it said, Slavo Ukraini. In, um, awesome. 
in no English, English like with English letters. And yeah. actually, it kind of reminds me about what something that a colleague of mine um, at our school, she teaches German, but she's from, she's from Ukraine, born and bred. And she said, you know, Mr. Steve, Slavo Ukraini has become not just something that belongs to Ukraine. This is something that now belongs to the whole world. It's like a state of mind, yeah. she said. Mm -hmm. And I think that really does capture, because again, this is a striving um, democracy. It's trying this you know, liberal experiment as best as it can within the context that it has. And it's, it's not doing a bad job, you know, like it, it's working to some extent. Yeah, it's not a perfect system, right? There's always a struggle with corruption. Mm -hmm. especially after you know being in the soviet union for so long as it is with most uh former soviet republics but like the people want to change and i think that's something different between uh the russian citizens and the ukrainian citizens because russian citizens you maybe have like a quarter of the citizens who really want some kind of change and the rest are just kind of indifferent yeah, yeah. you know whereas with the ukrainians they've seen that they can change things right, with the revolution of dignity in 2014, where they actually changed the leadership of their country just from, like, one, one thing that Yanukovych had said, <laughs> and that's it, right? Yeah. Just that he wants to be closer with Russia than with the EU, and that set off a, you know, wildfire. Yeah. And I think that when they understood that they had the power, now everything changed. The whole playing field of Ukraine changed, and I'm, I don't think that Putin and... Uh, the Russian government has really understood that yet, but I think they will, because as I said, it's not just the Ukrainian military that's fighting, it's the Ukrainian people that are fighting. They are actively assisting um, the military, and that's why I think Putin is now targeting, or his troops are now targeting um, residential areas, for example, yeah. you know, just to kind of break their spirits, but it's, it's not going to. It's only going to get worse for Russians, because Ukrainian people do not give up. Yeah. They will not give up. <laughs> and that that's what we, I mean, for all that we talk about, like the United States response has been great. The EU response has been great. None of that is possible without the Ukrainian people themselves standing mm -hmm. up and fighting in this way. Because if, if it would have just rolled over and said, okay, I guess we're part of Russia now, like you wouldn't have seen this type of effect anywhere else. You know, it's, the world is so truly inspired by by how much Ukraine is fighting back on this. And they've yeah. got a lot of advantages going for them versus um, I mean, you could find you could easily find examples in a lot of the countries that have had conflict in the Middle East or the Islamic world where they're local. They have, you know, uh, contingencies of patriots that could fight like hell for their country that, you know, they're not going to give in to authoritarianism. You know, I'm sure you could find examples of people that love democracy you know, in many different countries. But I think what it is, is like Stephen said, it's just the, the general consensus, like just the, the sheer amount of Ukrainian people that are united. So there's not necessarily like the kind of infighting or tribalism that you might see in um, Afghanistan or Syria or Lebanon, where, yeah, you might have people that might want to fight for freedom, but there's so much infighting. You know, thank God the Ukrainian people are united. So you, you really have a binary. Yeah, and the the you know, and that's I, what's important. It's a binary. It's not like oh, there's 18 different you know sub factions fighting. Like, well, I find really interesting that you kind of mentioned Middle East because you know one other thing that uh, kind of has made really, me really wonder 
is that we can actually, I think, kind of see a, maybe a bit of a post-colonialist and, and racism argument also here, right? So the question that struck me is like, why the conflicts in Yemen and Syria are not making such a grand headlines and such a grand solidarity among the whole world, right? Well, whereas like people, whereas like when, when it comes to Ukraine, right, people are like everywhere, as you said, like Steve, right? So basically, Slava Ukraini, it's like everywhere, right? Whereas like if there Run is like Slava. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right? Yeah. Whereas like if you talk about Syria and Yemen and Palestine, conflicts like that, we don't see that reaction, right? So I think the thing is there is a lot of difference. And I would go back to my point that there's just more of a sense of uh, solidarity or a united front for Ukrainians versus again, you could look at countries in the Levant. There's they 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 break up, you know, neighborhood to neighborhood. If you look at Libya, yeah. for example, you have militias that fight each other violently, and their only difference is they're from neighborhood A or neighborhood B. So I think the difference here, you know, is like the idea that you know, most Ukrainians will defend their country under one flag. And I don't know if you would see that as much in a lot of uh, Middle Eastern countries, which, I mean, you want to talk about byproduct colonialism. It's the fact that a lot of these Middle Eastern countries or Islamic countries are cobbled together from so many different yeah, ethno-national yeah, groups. Yeah, you know? well, one of the And things... that, that natural divisiveness is the source of weakness, not necessarily some sort of you know, so it, it doesn't not, generate not because the effect, we're racist right? to them. Is that what because... you're saying? It doesn't generate the effect that it should should be, like right? uh, that it should be yeah. done, right, or, or something. Right? Yeah, it's yeah. just. I mean, Ukrainians can fight under one flag. Where always, how many flags? How many different, you know, contingencies? How many yeah. different militia groups do you see in Middle Eastern countries, or like you know, and even Afghanistan, like you know. Uh, while they could repel an invader, they're, they're still, it's a country of different tribes. I think the only country where I could say like under one flag maybe would be like, you know, Palestinians because they are united under one flag, but they do obviously. Still they have like groups. many factions there. They do, yeah. they do. They have, yeah. they have more moderate and less yeah. extreme groups, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So there is a difference. Yeah. But then Hamas would like to have a word with you. Um, Hamas, yeah, would, I, I, Hamas I, would love to have a word with me. <laughs> I, I bet that I bet they would. Yeah, Hamas would love to uh, invite me back to their place. Um, yeah, don't take, their place? <laughs> don't take that invite. Don't take that invite. No, no, no. I, I, yeah, no. Mm -mm. I mean, I think there is like a great comparison actually with Afghanistan, you know, when Taliban kind of advanced on the capital of Kabul, like the leader just left with all the money, right? So it exactly. basically just destroyed the morale of the, the troops completely, right? So Zelensky is kind of um, anti-example of like basically he's an example of leader who stays, right? So basically he helps to keep the system together and he kills he kind of helps to keep this mechanism of resistance moving. So, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, I really hope he's, he will, he will be well. So, yeah. But, yeah. but even if he isn't, I mean, he's a legend now. And yeah, he's a legend. Go away. Yeah. yeah. And considering as well, you know, uh, if we go back into Russian politics, for instance, where there've been, um, Russia's had its own breakaway regions, particularly in the Caucasus yeah. and Chechnya. Right. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you guys heard this, but the 
there's a, I don't know if it's a government in exile from Chechnya or some leaders of this particular government who are now living in Brussels actually made a whole speech and declaration calling on, on all Chechens to join Ukraine uh, with the idea that they would be able to kill Russians. And I, I wouldn't, like, I know that Ukraine's going to win, ultimately. They have yeah. the whole world behind them. They are going to win. But I wonder about whether or not there's going to be a third Chechnyan civil war after this, because once the Russians have lost, I mean, it's already, their casualties are already at more than 10,000. There was a, a yeah. Russian politician who came out and said that um, they had removed some of the people, like 100 troops from one particular unit that have, like they called them back to Russia and only four of them survived. And it's only been, what, nine days now? Eight, eight nine days? Yeah. And their casualties are already at more than 10,000. I mean, in the whole of the, I think it was the second Chechen war, it was around 15,000 people that had died on the Russian side, but that lasted for like a year and a half. Good Lord, that's, that's intense. Yeah, so, I mean, when you think about it, if this drags on for a year and a half, Russia's, gonna be, Russia's military is going to be so crippled, they're not going to be able to withstand any kind of civil wars. You know, if Chechnya wants to be independent and free, like they've wanted for, you know, the past 20 years, they might actually get it the third time. Third time might be the charm. <laughs> I mean, I mean that the social contract that they have over there with like Ramzan Kadir and everything, like uh, you can even argue that there are some issues where he actually can play a role of a kingmaker anyway. So basically, like, I mean, he's of course dependent on Russian, right? The Russian president, but uh, I mean, uh, this dependency is the one that's basically, I think, both Putin and Kadyrov need each other in a, in a way. So I guess, um, I don't know, but uh, it's well, I, really, maybe yeah. Maybe they need each other, but I'm not sure that the Chechen people think that they need. And okay. uh, before I came to Ukraine, actually, I was part of a, a website, VK, if you guys know of Kontaktia, yeah. um, which is basically the Russian Facebook. And... I was getting messages from people in, what was it called, uh, Kazan, the city of Kazan, who were separatists. They wanted to actually create their own republic away from Russia. So I'm not sure that, like, this whole idea about, you know, um, Tatar uh, independence isn't so localized. I think it's a lot more widespread in Russia than Putin would like to think so. And, you know, again, if he loses his military... You know, he's moved two thirds of his military, as far as I understand, into Ukraine and not and a lot heard, to go for it. Um, I've heard, uh, I, I think it was one of their leaders in exile or one of their, a, a, polit a Russian politician who, you know, spent 10 years in jail or something like that. And he said that, you know, every, every Russian protest that requires Russian security forces to quell the protest is one less soldier on the front lines in Ukraine. So it, right. it feels like, yeah. you know, it's a zero sum game for uh, Russia that they can only be spread out to so many different fronts. And I know that they're supposedly trying to rely on Belarus for additional support. I don't know how well it's going out. Though hmm? it sounds like Belarus actually is potentially revolting against that, like not, you know, yeah. the, 
Yeah. Well, I mean, like Lukashenko is kind of hostage now because you know after yeah. after the protests that that started, I mean, he's completely dependent on Putin. So that's yeah. that's the thing, right? So he doesn't have any choice. But I don't think he particularly likes to being pulled into yeah. the game. But right? the, the, the rumors uh, coming out, especially today, is that uh, Belarus, the military, has basically said like we're not gonna go in there. We're not okay with this, which yeah. even shows how oh. how it really does seem like this decision was basically Putin's and, and his alone. Oh, geez. And, you can, and you can see with how isolated he's been the past two years because of COVID, like, I do wonder to what extent that's that's influenced his decision where he got in his own head and started believing his own bullshit. So, Tom, to one of the points that you made earlier um, about, you know, that this is the propaganda machine, right? And how that's not really going to break through to the average Russian. And th- that's true to an extent. But I'm not sure that that's actually the the real point of the sanctions. It's really going after the oligarchs because they're the ones who could actually do something to change Putin's calculus or maybe in some way to remove him. I don't know how possible that is, but like if that were to happen, it's not because a bunch of, you know, random people in Russia start rising up. It's because the power centers around Putin start to crumble. Because no, even an authoritarian, you know, hellscape like Russia is not truly dictated by one person. It is these like centers of gravity that all still coalesce to Putin. But at some point, if enough pressure is applied, maybe they can peel off enough of them and get him to at least change his calculus. I think that's the idea behind it. Yeah, I think you have a point, of course. I mean, there will definitely be an increase of increasing pressure in terms of uh, within his winner circle as well, right? But I think he kind of has prepared for that for some time. I mean, like he has, I, I'm, I don't believe that he hasn't been talking to those people, right? I mean, we, we, we maybe see some kind of signs of fracture coming, but I'm not sure. Like, I, I, I don't want to like... Um, like um, try to prophesize everything, right? Because I, yeah. I really, plus Russia is also definitely not my area of expertise, uh, although I'm from one region, but as you know, I mostly focus on Middle East in my studies. But mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, I, I think that there he has something maybe figured out as well. Plus, if he really falls, actually I'm afraid even more then. Because if you see all those peoples which are around him, they are some are somewhat even more crazy than him sometimes, right? So uh, there is this um, there is this argument that even if he falls and his closer circle kind of takes over, will Russia really be more benign actor than I don't know? It, it can it can be the same, but even yeah. more unpredictable, perhaps. Or maybe, as Steve said, Russia could also tr- again move, sort of move towards falling apart, as there as it was in '90s, right? When there were like yeah. these breakaway republics and breakaway regions. Like, we don't know. Like, we are now. I think we are now in such uncharted waters that I think we can just just see and see what happens, and then just kind of react. And uh, that's the best <laughs> we can do, I think. Yeah, I don't think Russia is going to fall apart completely. Yeah, that's um, of course, but I do know that there's a strong sense of nationalism in a lot of the Caucasian republics. And after years and years of, you know, sons, daughters, mothers, fathers being taken away and then just disappearing, you know, that that has an effect um, to some extent. And right, like right now, maybe it's the the point of 
you know, okay, fine. You are the ruler. We respect you. We're afraid of you. We're not going to do anything against you. But as soon as you take that away uh, and you show that there's this, you know, these cracks in their military and mm-hmm. they're not as strong as, as you might think they are, kind of a house of cards, if you will. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's going to lead to a lot more talk and a lot more discussion about independent breakaway groups or at least autonomous maybe they maybe they won't break away from russia completely maybe they'll just get some kind of autonomous uh recognition so you have to keep in mind that um in the soviet the post-soviet uh model um not everyone was guaranteed some kind of independent you know constitution for example so for them uh it might be to that extent very easily solved if they can get some kind of autonomous um, recognition, if they can have their own constitution, their own protected languages, that might work. So basically, it would be great if we had the negotiation, right? Because in 90s, Russia wasn't really willing to negotiate, even though it was weekend, it's still like US military forces in Chechnya, right? So, um, so I hope you're right. I mean, but yeah, I don't think that it's going to fall apart either, right? I just think that... I, but I agree to you that uh, there might be a bit more friction, maybe, um, if if it really some, if really something happens. But I think we can only speculate currently. We really don't yeah. know, right? You know, you don't have the strength of the competence with your armed forces to do a ground-level occupation, which is always necessary. If you want to comprehensively... Uh, control a region, you need to have a competent boots on the ground contingency. So what Russia seems to do, like they did in Syria or uh, Chechnya, is just just basically bomb, you know, civilian zones in the air. And I'm just afraid that Russia won't let go that easily. Like, I mean, they, you know, just by virtue of saving face, they'll just basically airstrike anything that they can't, they can't keep, you know. And at that point, it, it worries me because, you know, Ukrainian resistance, etc., is great for, you know, this ground-to-ground interactions. Uh, and I know that Ukraine does have some anti-air capacity, but it worries me deeply to think what would happen if Russia just decided that maybe they'll have even less scruples than they do now. Yeah, because and that's... right now there's no, there's no way that the EU is going to implement a no-fly zone because that's a direct provocation. Yeah. yeah, that's that's one thing I want to touch on, especially for our listeners who might not, you know, the, there's a lot of well-meaning people who think like, yeah, let's do, you know, we should have a no-fly zone because we've we've done this before in you know in Iraq and places like that, and and it sounds great on the face of it, but it's kind of like, you know, that scene in the office where he declares bankruptcy, right? Like you can't just <laughs> declare a no-fly zone; you have to enforce it, and that means shooting down Russians with either NATO or American planes. And it also means taking out anti-air capabilities, not just within Ukraine, but you have, there's some on the Russian border that you would have to go into Russia and destroy those anti-aircraft capabilities in order to enforce your no-fly zone. That means dead Russians, that means the US and NATO directly in conflict with Russia, that means World War III. That's why that isn't going to happen as much as, as great as it would be to, to help the Ukrainian people. It's it's just not going to happen. Russia and and Putin especially is obsessed with strength, with looking strong and not looking yeah. weak. And right That's now, true. they look absolutely weak and and pathetic. Like because 
because what you were saying, you know, those these other areas of the world are taking note, you know, Chechnya, these other potentially potential breakaway regions, they're looking at this and going like, God, I mean, the Ukrainians are just making them look so awful and weak and able to just utterly destroy some of these Russian forces and stop them in their tracks. Like, if that's the best that Russia has to offer, um, you know, these other places are taking note. And I would think that they're looking at it and going, maybe we have an opportunity now where we can try to push for some type of autonomy or actual independence. And that that calculus is going to drive Putin insane. You know, he needs to look strong in his own eyes. And right now, everyone sees him for just the, they, they see him for what he is. And he's going to do everything he can to, like you said, Matt, to save face. And unfortunately, that is going to end in in a lot of pain and suffering. Yeah, I, I think I think that the Russian people uh, don't want this. I think that Putin mm-hmm. has severely underestimated um, the reaction that he's he's getting, and I think it's only going to get worse for him. Honestly, that's that's the main message. It's only going to get worse. Yeah, it's of of all the the scenarios, you know, uh, probably the most likely is that you know there's it still drags on for a while, but eventually he just he cannot hold. Ukraine for whatever that looks like. And we don't know the time frame on that, but eventually just has to give up and 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 leave at some point. Or in, in the absolute like worst, most likely case, you know, maybe he does actually succeed in, in taking significant parts of the country and cities and installing some type of puppet government, but it's meaningless. You know, he can't he can't really do anything with it. And it's a hollow victory. And that's probably the best case scenario for Putin is some kind of hollow victory that really doesn't mean much. An invader, an aggressor has come onto their land with the intention of changing something in the system that they've been a, a, accustomed to, basically. Yeah. It doesn't matter how many people they have. They're yeah. going to fight until the very bitter end. I see babushkas with uh, AK-47s. You know, yeah. before I left, before I left Kiev, there were... Um, there were like training, military training exercises for people, learning how to fire AK-47s just in case the Russians actually invaded, you know, mothers with children, you know, learning how to fire a gun. So, and, you know, frankly, since it's gone to the point where civilians are being targeted, I'd say absolutely, you know, you know, at this point, whether you call it defense of their republic or just even as if you want to think of it as personal self-defense. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. you know, you could see it, you know, as you know, morally acceptable to say, you know, let's send them arms, let's let, help them continue this resistance. Um, so I guess, Tom, so one thing I wanted, I wanted to get your perspective just a little bit um, on how the rest of Europe, how Latvia is looking at this, because kind of as we mentioned before, you know, um, if Putin were to, to really go like full insane and actually try to test the NATO alliance, he would probably go for the Baltic states first. Just geographically, it makes the most sense, and it has the least number of like bases and and active U.S. military troops there. So, you know, yeah. what's the thought there? Yeah, well, honestly, I I kind of feel a bit in a privileged position now because I I mean, like I'm in the United States, right? I'm not now really in Latvia, but I, st- I of course still follow the news a lot, and yeah. my family is still there, my friends are still there, and I just I'm I'm in, within this, you know, like this information space right so my sense is that uh, there is kind of like a 
big anxiety now in Baltic states. In Latvia, definitely, right? People are like, a lot of people are scared. Some people maybe maybe less scared, but still a bit, you know, worried, you know, all right? So uh, basically, I think our politicians are kind of now trying to kind of um, convince everyone to um, maintain peace, you know, not not to over-exaggerate things, not to panic. I think that's the, that's the most important thing. And the other thing is, of course, we are trying to support Ukraine as much as possible. And uh, we're also uh, we're also sending the weapons that you guys send us, Americans, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> the allies. And um, we also, we are, I think we are kind of grateful that we got a bit of additional forces as well um, of NATO. I mean, they are very important for the Terrence reasons, right? Yeah. And um and also, I think oh, there is now discussion that uh, there is again, like like this um, sort of say uh, emphasis again that we should spend more on defense. So we are kind of increasing our defense spending again to 2.5 percent, like in Latvia, right? So mm-hmm. it's it's basically like there is something in the air, like that we are kind of could be the next targets, and especially Latvia because we have the most the biggest amount of Russian speakers there, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah. we are really glad that we are under the NATO umbrella, right? So that's kind of like our, or <laughs> you could say our um, our magic magic wand, you know, like the the way how we can kind of resolve these things. Because if there wouldn't be NATO, then basically there wouldn't be anyone to protect us, and uh, and we are really glad, and we and we, we kind of hope that the NATO the guarantees that allies have brought us that they will hold, right? When when yeah. crisis starts. Well, and I think that um, and that speaks to really the heart of this entire conflict is like you guys are part of the NATO alliance. You have that yeah. Article Five guarantee, yeah. which says that we all, the United States included, will come to your aid. And I think, I, I think you can rest assured that that would happen. You know, if Putin were to make some type of move, because I mean, just look at how much support is being given right up to the line of direct U.S. troops involved in Ukraine without crossing over that line and knowing that if the United States did not uphold that promise, that is the end of NATO as a functioning yeah, entity. That is the agree. end of a European yeah. security on the entire continent. That's not an exaggeration to say that. If the United States doesn't uphold that con- that that promise to allies like Latvia, the ones that are already part of NATO, then all bets are off and you know, God knows what could happen. Yeah, you know, the problem is that it also takes some sort of political will to interpret the Article 5 correctly, if, you, if I may say. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, you have to decide that there is still an Article 5 breach before you kind of are obliged to deploy forces to help us, right? And I think that kind of also requires political will. Mm-hmm. So what we can hope is that there is this political will in place, right? I hope it, I hope there will be because I think NATO is also not only a defensive alliance; it's also a, a, a tool for the United States to kind of have influence in European affairs. I think so, right? So basically, absolutely, if, yeah. So basically, if NATO would collapse, then there this major tool of influence would also be gone, and uh, mm-hmm. the United States would also be a loser in this sense. Oh, absolutely. The the very fact of United States presence, and I will. I've said this so many times in the podcast is just how much that benefits the average American, 
from just like even an economic standpoint, you know, the, the ability of the United States to have that influence in Europe and to bring that home to the United States is truly invaluable. And I mean, it's one of the most important military alliances you have in the world. It's, it's, it has been extremely successful. And I mean, if you are part mm-hmm. of it, you are in a really good place already. I mean, yeah. That's why we're so grateful that yeah. we managed to get inside this train when mm-hmm. basically there was this huge enlargement in 2004. I mean, yeah. if we had lost the train, then now the situation would be so much more scarier, I think. Just looking at how the Russian military has been bogged down in Ukraine and thinking, comparing, trying to compare that, the, the entirety of the Russian military force, the entirety of NATO's force, it is just not even comparable how much larger how much more technically capable you know i don't want to sound like overly arrogant but i don't think that that conflict if it really got to that point would last very long because i think that the united states obviously has war gamed this out for decades and knows exactly what they would do and when they would do it i really don't think that it would take that long to just completely eliminate that threat you know, Do you like, guys one really, think one really were... bad joke that one of my professors kind of made here, another one, was that uh, basically when Trump gets elected, then Putin will get politics. Okay. Well, I, I, think, I think it's completely <laughs> wrong, right? <laughs> I don't agree to that, but I think there is some sort of also this tension in the air, you know, like... Actually, it came out, John Bolton, the most hawkish person almost on the face of the world, even came out today and said that was Trump's plan was if he got reelected to just try to dissolve United States support in NATO and think about how like how different the conflict would be right now. Like, I'm sorry, Steve, Ukraine would not have very much support from the United States or probably even much of Europe because Trump would be basically taking Putin's side or at the very least, like certainly not taking Ukraine's side in that. And that's Uh horrifying to think about how different things would be in this critical hinge point in in It's shocking to think about that, Nick. I don't mean to interrupt or, you know, talk about it. And how it could still happen. Yeah, just the fact that, so, I mean, before, I mean, first of all, it's shocking to think how much an actual leadership, an actual leader, an actual what's the word I'm thinking of commander in chief, how much the commander in chief actually really matters until you mm-hmm. bring that up. You know, yeah. how would Trump have reacted if Trump won his second term? It's shocking to think that the reality of our world could actually be quite different. Not just how much does he piss people off or, you know, how popular are his stupid rallies, but to think about this vital inflection point in Europe right now, would be completely different with a different commander in chief, and that is <laughs> shocking. I, I just it's, it's not an exaggeration to think that instead of talking about how united Europe and the West is, the the conversation would be the exact opposite. Well, like Europe was... is fragmented, the West is abandoned its position, and it is the rise of authoritarianism in human and, history again. And I really think that that would be reality. the difference. I think that. Um, the more that we learn as American citizens about the rest of the world, we start to understand our place in it. And actually NATO is important to us, you know, whereas maybe before before we didn't think that it was so important, but now we see, okay, there's a real actual reason for it. 
you know, oh, defending, defending from authoritarian dictatorships in Europe. Well, anyone have final parting thoughts? If Glory I could. Of course. <laughs> Glory to Ukraine. <laughs> Glory to the heroes. Um, if I could, I, I would just like to say that um, for any viewers who are interested, there are several different places that they can go to to help with the war effort. I mean, I know that many of them probably have already, um, there's been so much support already. Um, but for me, I've been donating most of my salary, uh, whatever I have left to the Ukrainian army, um, just to try to help them out. There's, um, there's also, if they, if they Google, they can find uh, Ukraine now and they have a whole, um, list of different ways that they can donate, even with cryptocurrency. The Ukrainian government cannot actually accept cryptocurrency because of some legislation, but there's kind of like an intermediary that they can donate to, and that intermediary will donate, um, convert it to dollars. Yeah, and then there's a couple other places. Um, my school in, so we have two different schools actually. We have one in Kyiv and one in Odessa. They're like partner, partner schools. And the one in Odessa has opened up their uh, school for people who are fleeing from Kyiv or other uh, areas like Kharkiv into Odessa and are looking for a safe place to stay. Um, and also they can get a hot meal. Um, the school's providing some kind of meal for them. Um, and the same is true in uh, Kyiv. Obviously not so much with those shelter, but they are providing as much food as they as they can. We have a staff that's still in Kyiv that's working. There's lots of lots of opportunities to help in this way. And of course, Red Cross as well. So I, I would just encourage uh, viewers who, if talking with my family and with friends since I've come back, they always say, you know, I feel so bad about what's happening over there. I said, you know what? Like stop feeling bad and like do something about it. You know, you can you can try to help change the situation. It's within your power. So I would just encourage viewers to, to do the same, reach out and try to help change the situation because it is changing for the better. That's it for this episode of the Orientalist Express podcast. I'd like to once again, thank all of our guests for joining the show today. And thanks, of course, as always, to our listeners and readers of the blog. Be sure to check out our website at orientalistexpress.com, like and share on our Facebook page, or tweet us at orientalistdxp. And we urge everyone to find your local resources for supporting Ukrainians, for supporting Russians who are fleeing persecution right now, and for all the others who are impacted by war and violence abroad, because there's a lot of that going around. So now is the time to show the world the best that America has to offer. So thanks again. We'll see you next time. Slava Ukraine.